Welcome to Ask the Dean. My name is Dr. Ryan Gray, and I'm the co-founder of MAPT. I'm joined every week by Rachel Grubbs, the other co-founder of MAPT, who has 20 years' experience in the pre-med and test prep world, and by Dr. Scott Wright, former executive director of TMDSAS and former director of admissions at UT Southwestern Medical School. Ask the Dean is a weekly Q&A we do live exclusively for our MAPT members, and this podcast is a recording of that session so that everyone can benefit from that knowledge. Sorry to provide another quote-unquote clinical experience question. Hopefully this one is not too dumb. I've been working as a rehab coordinator at a chiropractic clinic where effectively I work as an athletic trainer. My job duties are virtually identical. I take vitals, design and administer rehab protocols and therapeutic interventions, assess injuries, and work closely with patients to rehabilitate serious injuries from high-impact trauma and conditions such as scoliosis. Is this considered clinical experience? It's a good question. A lot of people either on their journey to figuring out if being a physician is what they want and and just kind of a a caveat, right? Chiropractors can call themselves physicians, Um, but we're talking medical doctors, right? MDDOs. So on that journey, some people will, will look at chiropractic medicine and see if that's what they want, uh, or they have access to a chiropractor to do similar things as this student has done. From from an admissions committee standpoint, Scott, is it looked down upon to go, ooh, like a chiropractor? Like how serious are you about medicine if you were hanging out with the chiropractor? <laughs> <laughs> right? Again, another little caveat. There, There is some... some uh, uh, like sharks, sharks and jets, kind of between medicine and chiropractic medicine. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I think as with a lot of different um, things, uh, I think it depends on the admissions committee and the in the individual members of the admissions committee yep. as to how they will view um, that experience. Um, I think to the question itself, yes, I would consider that clinical. And, uh, but I think that you do as an applicant, I think you do have to, uh, be clear that, you know, this was an experience that you had that, um, you, and, and really reflect on it and, and, and help the admissions committee to understand that you are really looking for, um, that you were really, uh, getting a lot out of it and, uh, and that that, is meaningful and, and how you talk about it. But, but yes, I think, you know, there will be admissions committee members who will look at that and, and kind of frown upon it or whatever, but I guarantee you <laughs> that there are other admissions committee members who actually go to a chiropractor themselves. Of course. Oh yeah. Without a doubt. And uh, who, you know, don't have any problem with, with uh, that as a, as a, uh, an activity that could yep. be very beneficial. So I, I don't, you know, I just think that if that's your only clinical experience, then I think it could be problematic. Yep. But I think added to everything else that that hopefully you're doing, that it sounds good to me. Yeah, and I'm I'm glad you you added that on the end. I was waiting for that, and I was gonna pounce on it if you didn't uh, didn't bring it up, right? If it's your only, and I would potentially even say. And if it's your main clinical experience, there there are some questions, right? If if you spent so much time doing that, knowing that medicine really isn't that, 
why did you continue doing that? And obviously it's a job and you made money, but you could potentially find a job and, and make money somewhere else that that may potentially give you a little bit more access to what treating patients in a hospital would be like and, and more interaction with physicians. So that that's the only extra caveat I would put on it. But it's definitely a clinical experience. The, yeah, the question absolutely. is, are, are they going to, to like it or not? And it depends. Right. Somebody like my my wife, right, who's a neurologist who has seen tons and tons of patients post chiropractic care who have had strokes because of the manipulation to their neck. And yet chiropractors refuse <laughs> to uh, at least uh, bad chiropractors refuse to acknowledge that stroking out is uh, a, a vertebral dissection is a risk of having your neck ma- neck manipulated. That's where some of the uh, this, this hatred comes from. And so if a neurologist is reading your your application and you're hanging out with a chiropractor, there may be some bias there. Well, and, and you know, I would also add to that that um, it's not it, this way as much as it used to be, but there will be some MDs that if you um, shattered a, a osteopathic yep. doctor, they will frown upon that. Yep. And so, you know, I think that it's not, that's not as much of an issue these days as it used to be, but there's some old school uh, MDs that would totally discount that as, as reality, you know, as a, as a valuable experience. Yeah. Just like, just like everything in life, right? Individual bias is going to come into play when you're dealing with humans. Yeah, absolutely. That's right. Do you think it is harder for international students taking undergrad in the U.S. to get into medical school? Oh, I don't think. We know, right? This, that's yeah. an easy answer. Data shows yeah. uh, due to fewer schools accepting international students, fewer chances to work, uh, working off campus, obviously visa restrictions on where students can work and, right. and do things, right. obviously is a, is a huge barrier. Yeah. That's uh, obviously, oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, pretty straightforward question. Yeah. Absolutely. It's It's tougher. It's tougher to get in some medical schools will not just off the top will not accept international students at yep. all period. Um, and, uh, even if you do get in, uh, you better come with a lot of money because you're not going to get any aid from the federally subsidized student aid programs. Yep. So you really have to depend on your own, inc- your, your own family or whatever income or private, private loans, which can be pretty onerous. So. Yep. Yeah, so pri- private loans, and, and usually you're going to need someone in the U.S. to co-sign those. Um, uh, school aid, potentially, right? Some of the schools that accept international students have big endowments and can offer uh, kind of their own private either scholarship or loans directly to the student. Um, or some schools require, like, I, I want a full year's tuition in the bank, right? You, you send us a full year's tuition or all four years even sometimes I've... I've seen. Um, so, so let's just kind of expand that question a little bit because the the question really is well, number one, why, right? And, I, and I've heard directly from uh, it, one admissions committee, at least, or director of admissions, uh, that part of the problem is the the back end, right? Once a student graduates medical school, there are always going to be risks of visa issues. And it looks bad on the school to graduate a student and send them off to residency and then being an international student and now they have a visa issue and they're stuck in their home country or whatever the issue is. And, And the schools take that as like an attack on their brand almost, 
right? We don't want to look bad, uh, right? And right. and and set this precedent, and so that's that's part of it. Obviously, the the financial side of it is a big reason as well. What are some potential other things that you know well, about? I think particularly for state institutions, um, the the purpose of the of those institutions is to train doctors that will yep. practice in their state or yep. are you know in their localities or whatever. And by and by so, state, you mean public, right? Public schools. Yeah, public. That's yeah. exactly right. And so I think that um, it's not a small issue for a, for a public institution to be, to, you know, to be to say to their students, we, you know, we, we have the expectation that you're going to be interested in or involved in serving uh, in this state or in this country, at least, and, and an international student who wants to go back to wherever, or, you know, that's sort of an assumption, but uh, that, that can have an impact on yeah. it as well. And with the, with the limited number of seats in, in medical schools and the overwhelming number of applicants that they get, yeah, uh, it really doesn't make a whole lot of sense. There's no reason to, right? Yeah, there's no at the end of the day, yeah. and unless you you potentially are at a a school that values that diversity, and then they'll right. save some seats for for international students. Uh, and and not to say schools that don't accept international students don't value diversity, but they just they want from the U.S. Yeah. for for yeah. their purposes. Yeah. One of the biggest myths out there, I think, is that international students need to be just amazing outstanding statistic uh statistics that's not the right word stats uh, people right yeah. super yeah. high mcat super high gpa and that just doesn't always hold out right you, you obviously have to be a good applicant uh but it really comes down to everything else when it comes to picking and choosing schools is finding the school obviously number one that accepts international students and number two the, the school that fits your mission and and everything else and they they see that in everything that you've done and they want you there absolutely absolutely Completely agree with that. Oh, man. Good stuff. I like yeah. that question. Yeah. All right. Keep them coming. How do ad comms view gaps in clinical experience? Ooh, this is a good one. Let's talk about MAPT for a second. I was described from 2005 to 2007. Uh, then life took a detour. Does this clinical experience count? How best to address? Now, this is this is interesting because on MAPT, right, we have a, an activity graph. And right now, it's not super useful, but, but I, I sketched up a graph that included the ability to see those gaps. Because as, as an advisor, right, one of the things I look at is like, well, how long has it been? And what are, the, what are those gaps? And so it'd be yeah. easy to look at. Um, what do you think about that? Well, I think, I mean, as with a lot of these questions, sometimes there's, there's not, we don't have all the information. And so it's a little bit difficult to, you know, make a, uh, a, an informed comment about it. But from what it sounds like, 2005 to 2007, there were clinical experiences as, as a scribe. And then the, the question says, life took a detour. Mm. And so my, que my question is, is that the only... Uh, clinical experience that you have is from a decade ago. And uh, if that's true, then absolutely it's going to be a problem. Uh, I think that, um, you know, medical school admissions committees want to see, you know, current, current stuff current going on. And, and you, you, you definitely can talk about life taking a detour and what that meant and what impact that had and et cetera. But um, to say that, 
to come to an admissions committee and say, well, I really want to go to medical school, but I haven't had any experience in 12 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that can be a problem. And so I think uh, uh, definitely having uh, more recent experience than that is, is going to be important yep. in my view. Yeah, more recent. I think obviously the 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 question is always going to be, well, why now, right? Well, yeah, yeah. ten years ago when I shadowed, I knew I wanted to be a doctor, and now's the time, right? And so yeah. obviously having that that newer uh, newer experience, but yeah, definitely put that old experience oh, sure. in your application because it it points to it, and I can't harp on this enough, and I'm pretty sure you can't either, right? It, it points to your specific story and what yeah. your specific journey has been. Uh, it, it shows, obviously, you were interested in it at some point, and then you weren't or you couldn't be for whatever reason, and now you're back. And that's awesome you're back. Congratulations. What happened in the interim? What's bringing you back now? It just leads to so many more questions about who you are as a person and as an applicant above yeah. and beyond, oh, you have a 3.5 GPA and a 510 MCAT right. score. Right. Those that's stories right. are important. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Is it advised to not retake a C or a C plus in general bio, even if it's been about four years out from taking the bio class and I remember little <laughs> and I'm transitioning from another career or take upper division classes and try to self-study for the MCAT bio section? Okay, let me look at this again. Can you leave that up for a second? Uh, is it advised to not retake a C or a C plus in general bio four years ago? From um, and I remember a little. That's the key part yeah, for me. <laughs> yeah, that's 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 an, a big. So that's a that's an issue. Yeah. Um, I definitely think that this is complicated uh, with it being four years out, and um, I. So I I don't know about this this issue. I I think that um, upper level bio classes are are great. And I, I, I wonder, however, if you're taking, uh, you know, microbiology or you're taking uh, uh, physiology of some kind or cell biology or genetics, um, how able you're going to be at that if you did poorly in, in, in bio originally and you don't even remember any of that, I, I, I question how well you're going to be able to do in those upper division classes. Yep. Um, so, you know, I, I would say I, I always tend to go toward the most sort of conservative route on these things and say, yes, I think it would be beneficial to retake the bio, um, to prepare you for what's going to come later. Uh, and so that you do have a, a foundation for those upper division classes, as well as for the bio section of the MCAT, um, Plus, uh, a C in, in a significant class like that never looks very good. Doesn't mean it's awful or whatever. C doesn't say, C does not stand necessarily for crappy, <laughs> but it it uh, it does suggest that there were some issues. So I guess my advice for this particular student would would be yes, I would probably go uh, and retake the, the bio class. Yeah. I agree. You can't you can't build a house on a crappy foundation. Yeah. C for crappy. Yeah. <laughs> um, definitely. Yeah. Awesome. 
Do you have any suggestions or perspective on obtaining clinical and research experience in the remote learning environment? Many of the more recent experiences were curtailed and will likely resume prior to the next application cycle. Yeah, we've we've talked about this a ton. Every everyone is really screwed in this situation. Um, it's just a matter of of making lots of phone calls and seeing if there's physicians out there allowing students to shadow. Um, and uh, potentially looking at hospitals to see if they're they're ramping up their volunteering uh, staff again, but it's just going to yeah. be it's going to be dependent on what their their liability insurance has covered. Yeah. Um, it's hard. So uh, we've we've talked about virtual shadowing, uh, virtual scribing, doing some sort of like um, hotline, like text hotline, suicide hotline kind of stuff as, as some experience, potentially virtual, virtual, um, like hospice, virtual kind of friends with people who are in nursing homes, stuff like that. They're, they're getting on zoom calls and stuff to help those people as well. Absolutely. You know, and I do also think that, you know, many of the schools that have secondaries these days are asking questions about how has COVID impacted you yep. uh and, and and that so i think again there's <clears throat> there's a recognition <clears throat> by admissions committees that uh this is impacting a lot of different things with applicants and uh and so i it, it, you're not the only one out there uh in this situation um i think admissions committees are going to be are going to err on the side of of really trying to give give ample uh, leeway for people who had this sort of thing, this interruption and, and, and weren't able to, to continue with things or they had stuff planned out and they got canceled or whatever. Um, so hopefully, you know, things will improve. But I, I agree with Dr. Gray that, you know, finding um, remote types of, act, uh, of experiences, while not the same thing or not, not best in the, in the best case scenario, it's at least it's something. Yeah. The the biggest issue comes for students who don't have anything and they were going to use this time to do something and now they'll have nothing. And my, my advice to those people are probably don't apply until you can start to get something uh, actual. Yeah. Um, that's going to be much harder. Yeah. Gap year might, might uh, be. Yeah. <laughs> please vaccine soon, please. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Exactly. <sighs> One day. I, I want to be microchipped by Bill Gates. Um, <laughs> any advice for those planning to take the MCAT early next year? Should I be using full length or half length? Obviously can't rely on AMC for accurate information about this kind of stuff. <laughs> Rachel Grubbs, our yeah. resident MCAT expert. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is a good question. Um, it, it's a loaded question, but I definitely feel you on why you've loaded it the way you have. <laughs> um, and actually, that's something that, I mean, this year has been a special kind of crazy, but it's always been true for summer preppers, right? Like every year they don't announce MCAT dates until September or October, and then they don't have registration until October or November. So there's always this weird period of time for folks who are starting prep in the summer for next year who are going, well, I think I'm going to take it in January, assuming there's a January date. Um, this year is definitely 
a lot harder and weirder, right? Because the, the question literally is, are we going to go back to an 8 a.m. start with a full-length exam? Are we going to continue to do this crazy three times a day thing with like dawn and midnight sort of, you know, starts and ends? Um, what I would advise you to do is plan on the full length because it's going to be a lot easier to prep for a long exam and dial it back than to prep for what is still a long exam, but comparatively shorter and then dial it up. Yep. Hope that helps. Yep. Yeah. Agreed. Oh, the MCAT, the WMC. I just went on a rant about them on an Instagram live. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully they weren't listening. Uh, or maybe they were. Uh, per the WMC, speaking of, wait, yeah. speaking of, uh, oh, wait, oh, different one. All right, we'll go to this one. I wanted to ask being a crisis team volunteer is a good substitute to getting direct patient care experience in lieu of the current pandemic. And if I can keep doing it until the 2021 cycle opens up. So crisis team volunteer, I, I'm assuming that's one of those like uh, suicide hotline, text hotline kind of uh, situations. Right. Yeah, we talked about it, right? I think that's a good substitute right now. Yeah. Uh, uh, if you want to keep doing it, once the pandemic's over through the application cycle, keep doing it. Uh, I would I would get in person as soon as you can start to get in person again. Absolutely. Agreed. Completely. Per the AAMC, being a caretaker to a family member is clinical experience. Yes, that is true. They have uh, they have a blog post about five experiences that are clinical or something. Uh, I've cared for my daughter with leukemia for three years. How do I differentiate the hours of clinical experience versus the hours of taking care of her as a mother? I feel that this is a very thin line, and I'm trying my best to calculate my hours in an honest and accurate manner. What a great question. Um, obviously, sorry, your daughter's dealing with leukemia. That uh, I hope she sure. gets better. Yeah. Um, yeah. So a lot of people don't realize that you can count uh, caretaking, right? Caretaking of a loved one, of a family member, friend, etc., as clinical experience. Now, this is obviously a tricky situation because obviously you're a mom twenty four seven. How much of that is is caretaking slash clinical experiences for the purposes of of translating that to an application? Yeah. <laughs> Care to guess? Let me, I'm going to read your face. I, I'm going to, I'm reading your face going, I don't know if I really like calling that clinical experience. Well, my, my, so here's my problem is that whether or not the AAMC says it's clinical experience is not relevant if the admissions committee member doesn't agree. Yep. Yeah. So just because AAMC says, oh yeah, it's clinical experience. <laughs> doesn't mean that the admissions committee at X school or Y school or whatever are going to agree with that. It's true, and right? So, you you may get someone who's like, sorry, you dealt, you got dealt a crappy hand, but you're a mom, not, not a, not a caretakers getting clinical experience. Right. And, and, and I think the key here is that um, what they want to see in clinical experience is a an an observational or a firsthand experience with healthcare in a real healthcare environment where you're getting to know this is what healthcare is all about this is what being a doctor is this is what uh, the relationships that doctors have with patients looks like this is what doctors and nurses and doctors and PAs and other healthcare providers how they interact um, you know all of this stuff works together and yep. in a caretaking environment that may be a lot different yeah 
so I'm not I'm not discounting that at all. Don't hear that. Yeah. But what I want to say is, if that's your only experience with healthcare, then I would see that as a little problematic. Yep. Yeah. And and actually, I had a student. Actually, the the first hire that I had at medical school headquarters, like full time student. She applied to medical school the first time around with only caretaking as clinical experience. And shocker, she didn't get in, right? And that's not to say you can't get in with just that, but um, she didn't get in. And typically my response to that is, right, when you when you look at a personal statement, the goal of that is to to talk about why you want to be a physician. And if you only have caretaking experience as your clinical experience, it's going to be hard to to really translate that into mm-hmm. uh, into why you want to be a physician. And so she reapplied with better clinical experience and and ultimately got in the the second time around. Um, I I want to to challenge you a little bit on the. Uh, clinical experience being in a clinical environment. That's, that's something that comes up a lot for students. And, and uh, obviously there, there are exceptions, right? Hospice is one of the ones that I think about all the time. Right? A lot of hospice is home hospice. You're, you're dealing with a quote-unquote patient, but in their home where they can be comfortable sure. and, uh, and relax. Uh, obviously home healthcare aides and nurses who are in a patient's home providing the healthcare that potentially they would be providing in a hospital, just in a home setting. So there, there are exceptions to that. Yeah. Um, but, but yeah, I, I think again, the, the key thing to what you said is only right. If that's your only, right. uh, it probably will be main if, if you calculate the hours out basically to answer the question, I would generally say, try to estimate the hours that you are in a hospital, that you are around, um, that you are around the doctors and, and all of that stuff and, and calculate it from that standpoint. Yeah. Agreed. It's very similar, right? When you, when you have a kid and and I have a kid who, who's had some extra health stuff. When, when you have a kid who, who needs extra care like that, you're almost like in a hospital setting, uh, a, um, a child life specialist, right? Who is in the hospital going room to room and really just being there for the family, comforting them, comforting the kids, making their experience as, as calm and peaceful as possible and as normal as possible. That's kind of what you're doing in this situation as a parent uh, to a a kid who needs um, some extra care. Right. That's right. Oh man. All right. Do neuroscience classes count for postback program? Apply. Wait. Do neuroscience classes for a postback program apply to any science GPA calculation, or will this be looked at separately? So this is a really good question because I think neuroscience is is one of those fields that is is growing in popularity. Mm-hmm. Number one, it's it's on many college campuses. It's a very popular major. Yep. Uh, very popular. And uh, what I would say in my experience is that some neuroscience classes can at, can uh, count as biology uh, and some uh, cannot. Yep. Uh, and, so, and really some, are, what, some are more from a psychology standpoint. That's right. Yep. So for, for example, uh, neuroanatomy would certainly, neurophysiology, neuropharmacology, these would mm-hmm. all definitely be biological in nature. Yep. Um, uh, there, there are some, however, 
uh, where depending on cognitive uh, neuroscience, for example, might, might be a good example of where it's really more psychological in, in nature yep. than it is biological. And so I think what you would need to do is check with your institution. Uh, the advisor at your particular institution would be able to help you identify uh, which of the neuroscience classes would count uh, toward meeting the biological science requirement for medical schools and which would not. Uh, I actually really love um, uh, neuroscience as a, as a uh, in, in terms of classes in neuroscience and, and particularly those students that are majoring in neuroscience. I, 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 I like it because it's got this sort of broadness and this, this, um, you know the the uh, the different the the different types of, of uh, subject matter that are involved in the in the courses I think are very exciting and that's what leads a lot of students into that field uh, in, into studying neuroscience and so I, I love neuroscience as, as an option for students uh, and I certainly think a lot of those classes can be uh, are definitely uh, biological so yeah absolutely yeah I think and obviously you can probably speak to this really well uh, because of the team at, at TMDSAS who's actually going out and looking at the the syllabi syllabus Correct. syllabi and and descriptions and mm -hmm. really making those determinations the, the adjudication of is the science yep. is it not yeah. um, to, to teach a student to do that is really just looking looking at that right looking at the syllabus looking at the description yep. Is it yep. is it more from the psychology standpoint where it's more behavioral right. uh, science, which for for most are not considered a science GPA, uh, right. or is it more uh, more along the the biology uh, right. chemistry uh, physiology standpoint, which is right. uh, better? Yeah, exactly, absolutely. Yep, and you know I think students can can make that determination, and with I know particularly with TMDSAS, it's it's uh, students, if the course is deemed to be not not science uh, and therefore not included in the in the BCPM GPA, then students can appeal that and they can say, mm -hmm. "Here's why I think you're wrong." Yeah. And here's this syllabus and here's this book and you know blah 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 and everything. Doesn't mean that'll fly and that they'll change their mind, but you know you can always make that effort. And there are times when when that would happen. So absolutely. Yeah. I'm glad Rachel's back. I, I I joked in a private chat that she was fired and then she left. <laughs> now she's back. Whew. All right. That was just a weird internet hiccup right after I saw your joke. Um, let's see. And we've actually got an MCAT question, so it works out well. Yeah, nice. I'm, on for a sec. I'm kind of on screen. I'm being hidden by the big, big comment. Okay. Due to COVID, my MCAT was pushed back like many others. However, I graduated in December 2019. Now I'm looking at taking the MCAT next year due to the lack of time to study this summer. Do you recommend anything unique to those who are a couple years out from undergrad studying versus those who are traditional or straight out of school? Slightly nervous about the time gap and loss of knowledge. Yeah, uh, it's hard, right? I mean, one thing that I hear every year from so-called traditional students is, well, it's spring of my junior year and general chemistry was two, two and a half years ago and I don't remember it that well. So I don't wanna dismiss your concern at all, but forgotten is forgotten, <laughs> right? So whether it was last year and you forgot or three and a half years ago and you forgot, and it, this is a common thing. Somewhere, I'll see if I can find it and post it in the um, Facebook group. There's like this Venn diagram that's like everything I learned in school 
everything I remember. <laughs> right. And the and the overlap is so tiny. Yeah. And then it's like everything on the MCAT. And there's so much else that's on the MCAT that you didn't even learn in school anyway. Yeah. Um, so that is kind of my longer way of saying no, I don't think you need to do anything special. Yeah. Um, what I will say is if you are out of school, then that might mean you have different obligations. So, you know, everyone's situation is different. I try to not ever make assumptions, but it does seem to be more common that if someone's graduated from school, they're probably, you know, having more serious bills to pay. And again, varies. <laughs> um, but so what you might want to be thinking about is not so much how many years out of school I've been, but are you working 30 hours a week? Are you working and getting volunteer experience? What are your other obligations? And think about that in terms of when you're planning your MCAT prep, because students, MCAT preppers routinely underestimate how long they need to prep. Yeah. Um, so think, think very honestly with yourself about your load and don't be afraid to build in cushion. I always say, if you're in school, skip all finals weeks. <laughs> um, you know, everyone has different holidays, different family cultures, but whatever the major obligations in your life, whether that's, you know, the last week of December or maybe it's the high holidays in the fall. Well, the high holidays, whenever they fall, happen to fall, which is <laughs> right. That varies, <laughs> varies on our on the on the non-lunar calendar. Um, think about those things and then build in a, a week of cushion for just straight up getting sick. Because, yeah. you know, even if you don't get covid, people get get the cold, get a flu. Um so that's what I would say is maybe a little bit more different, that if you're out of the studying groove, you need to really schedule your studying time like it's a part-time job. And then like any job, maybe you're sick once or twice in the entire year, but mostly you've got a scheduled shift, you show up, you do the work. Yeah. Show up and do the work. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that's the motto, the pre-med motto. Yep. I like it. It's half the battle. This is half the battle. Is there an amount of hours or numbers of experiences you recommend for clinical experience? I've spent 350 hours working as a CNA in the summer of 2019 and just started volunteering at hospice and will accumulate about 100 hours by the time of my application. Do I need to find another clinical activity to be competitive? Wow. Um I mean, my feeling on this one is, you know, it, it's never about the number, the, the quantitative number. But that's not um, that's not what SDN tells me. SDN tells me <laughs> I need 3,000 hours of clinical experience, four first author publications, <laughs> and much more. Yeah, well. <laughs> so anyway, back to reality. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, I mean, I think that, this is really, you know, about what you, you know, I, I hate to emphasize it too much, but it's really about what you learn in those CNA experiences and what you're learning in the hospice experience. That's a lot of, that's a lot of hours. 350 is, is quite a, quite a few hours as a CNA. And my, my feeling, no, the little I know about CNAs is you're doing all the scut work. Uh, you know, you're cleaning bedpans and you're, you know, doing sheets and you're doing, you know, so you're doing a lot of scut work as you're going through uh, that experience, which is not bad. I mean, you really are seeing you're in the environment, you're seeing things, you're, you're witnessing your, your, uh, the, the interactions between doctors and, and, and various people and, and stuff like that. So, and then with the hospice, I mean, you're getting a whole different experience and it's a much, much different level of experience there. So, 
my feeling is that uh, this sounds like good stuff to me uh, on the on the on the the, the surface. Uh, my my uh, what I would emphasize is is really you want to capture the the significance of the things that you've done and seen and, and been about as either a CNA or in your hospice experiences, and then that's going to be a major impactful part of your application. But I don't think on face value that seeking out something else with that many hours and stuff that you've done is really going to be that necessary. I, you know, you've got a lot of stuff. There's going to be a lot of applicants that are going to come in with a, a hell of a lot less hours than those. Yeah. And uh, so I, I think, I think you sound pretty, pretty good. What's the, the potential that I see here is, oh, okay, 350 hours in the summer of 2019. It, it looks like that check, okay, I did it, right? I got my bunch of hours over the summer, mm-hmm. and now I'm going to do 100 hours uh, before my application for this next thing. And so it, it kind of looks like during the year, wh- whatever else, like I'm focused on class work, and so I don't have time for right. anything else. So right. does it potentially have this this look of – a student who can't handle a lot of things outside of schoolwork, um, or does it look like a student who's just checking a box would be my potential concern? Yeah, that's a good that's a good point. I I, I didn't notice that when when I, when you were reading the question, but I I do one I, I, do, I agree with you. I wonder about that where you have summer of two thousand. So all of those sounds like all those three hundred fifty hours of CNA were in the summer. Yep, and then. And you just started volunteering at hospice, I guess. Again, summer, during the summer. summer. Yeah, so I'm, I'm wondering if that hospice volunteer stuff will go on into the fall. Um, but I, I think you're right, um, Ryan, in terms of you, uh, in terms of the question being, you know, is it, is it, uh, are, are you, are you uh, unable to really do everything at one time? Uh, and are you sort of, centering your your volunteer your your clinical experiences in the summer and then in the fall you're totally concentrated on uh, on schoolwork um, how that gets um, seen how that gets perceived by an admissions committee member that's reading your file or, or a group of members who are you know sort of making the decisions that can vary quite a bit and um I think some admissions committee members are a little bit more forgiving about stuff like that when, when you know you're concentrated on schoolwork during the fall or spring or whatever, and you you know you're you're centering your clinical activities in the in the summer. I think others might might think, "Wow, geez, can you not do everything like everybody else does?" Or you know, what's what's up with that? So I think it'd go either way, but I I don't think that um, on, I, I still I still think on face value. Um, you've done a lot of good stuff in last last summer with your CNA experiences. Um, if you're looking at over the course of the next academic year, um, if you have a CNA, you know, if you are a, a registered or a cert- certified or whatever it is CNA, then you know, sure, surely you might be able to continue using that in a way that would uh, enable you to get. It, you know, maybe some limited experiences over the course of, the, of this academic year, along with what you're doing with hospice and stuff. So, you know, that might answer that question in terms of, you know, just doing stuff in the summers. Mm. 
Yep. Ooh. Follow up on the caretaking experience. Could you put it on your application as other and mark it as zero hours if it's a meaningful activity but not necessarily under clinical? Asking me because I'm also a caretaker to a grandfather with dementia. I feel more like an advocate but feel it is important to mention. Hmm. I mean, yeah, you could do that. Yeah. Um, I, I don't see a problem with that. I, 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 is, is this the same person that's caring for the child with leukemia? Or? I don't think so. I hope yeah, not. It's, it's someone goodness. different. Okay, good. I was like, holy <laughs> That's God. a lot on your plate, yeah. I think she, she did ask it, or, well, the person asked it while we were discussing yep. the, oh, the okay. mother who had okay. the ill child. So okay. it was sort of relevant to that moment. I was going to be like, bless that person's heart, my <laughs> Lord. <laughs> so, I mean, yeah, absolutely. You can, you know, you can always do, and that's the thing about the application is, you know, you can put things in different categories and mark them in the application as other or clinical or whatever. And what you have to be able to do is, is in doing that, you have to make the case for why you did that. In fr when somebody that doesn't know you is reading your application so that it makes sense to them. Mm. Uh, that's the key to this or if you get an interview and the interviewer looks at your stuff and says, well, why did you do this? You've got to have a good explanation for why you did it that way and what you were meaning to talk about and, and the value of it and everything. But I think you have to keep in mind that the people that are reading your application do not know you. Uh, they, they're, you know, they're trying to figure out who you are and what you put in the application and how you talk about things that you've done have to make sense to that reader. And if, if they don't make sense to that reader, then it's going to be a lot easier for them to, to say, you know what, I'm just going to toss this one in the no pile yep. as opposed to really making an effort. So, yeah, I mean, you can do what, what you think sounds reasonable to, to you. And, and that's where you have to kind of make those decisions on your own and then uh, and then do it in such a way that it's going to make sense to, to the person that's reading. This is Dr. Gray again, closing out. I hope you learned something from our session today. If you haven't yet checked out Mapped, I invite you to try it for free for two weeks by going to mapped.com slash podcast. Track and navigate your journey to medical school using the only tool like it for pre-meds. We'll see you next week here on Ask the Dean.